Welcome to another episode of Bringing Down the Grindhouse, a podcast where we discuss horror in media. And tonight, grab your broomsticks and subvert your expectations as we delve into the Neon Demon and the Love Witch. I'm Mitch. I'm Mur. I'm Justine. And I'm Jonathan. Cool. So, these were my picks for the week. And I'm pretty excited to talk about both of these. Uh, I, I wanted to choose these movies because I don't often see horror movies that are starring females, especially in these sort of roles that they play. It also plays a lot on social expectations of women and our perceptions of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. So, with that being said, I think I'd like to start with The Neon Demon tonight. How do you guys feel about that? Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah? I'm about it. All right, so what were your initial thoughts on this movie? I thought the Neon Demon had a very visually pleasing aesthetic, and it very much made me scared of not only like the expectations of people, but specifically women in the modeling industry. I felt very uncomfortable, and I felt like I was very much in the shoes of the main character the entire time. Mm-hmm. Yes, welcome to the cult of fashion. Ah, yes. Yes, the blood cult of fashion uh. was indeed what we got <laughs> some we blood got magic going into on. This yeah. movie. It reminded me a lot of Suspiria. Definitely. Yep. Really on like the choice of colors. The visual aspect. I think that was probably my favorite part about this movie is it's so visual. It's like obviously an art house film. Oh yeah, this is like on the uh, extreme end of being an art house film because of the visuals they chose. Just the the color palette that they decided to use when she was like going to the club for the first time and they have their like suspension show that's happening and it's just like a strobe light that's happening as you get to see their responses to what's happening. And then the like actual runway show itself, which is fucking awesome. Oh yeah. Just to see like her, we'll get to it, but like, initial impressions it's aesthetically pleasing and i think it's heavily underrated it's a really really good piece of cinematography at the very least yeah this movie didn't do that great in the box office but we're gonna get to that so the neon demon is directed by nicholas windig refn he is a i believe he's danish i think yeah he's a danish film director and screenwriter uh he's known for doing drive also bronson if you guys are familiar with those yep highly stylized yes very much so uh this movie stars elle fanning and she plays a 16 year old model aspiring model that leaves her little small town of georgia and moves to the big city of los angeles in pursuit of her modeling career and starts off very like typical and cliche yeah this is like the story you've heard in all the coming of age stories it really couldn't have been more simple and straightforward than what Mm -hmm. they did in the very beginning Right. Uh, let's see. So this movie came out in 2016. Uh, it was co-written by Mary Laws, Polly Stenham, and stars Elle Fanning and Keanu Reeves. Like I, oh, Keanu Reeves. Yeah, he's in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> kind of a small-ish character, but he's very creepy. Yeah. Very I have never seen Keanu Reeves in a role like this before. He's always a good guy. You kind of feel for him no matter what. But in this case, I was like, oh. He's just a terrible person in this <laughs> yeah. one. He's this not, is, there is nothing redeeming about this man. This is like seeing Jake Gyllenhaal in Nightcrawler for the first time. Oh, yeah. That was Where you weird. see him just be a fucked up person. And you're like, I was not expecting this kind of but performance from this actor. But he was so good actor. at it. Yeah, he was really good yeah. at it. I mean, the creepy. same thing happened to me when I saw 10 Cloverfield Lane with oh, John Goodman. Yeah, with yeah. John Goodman. That's so good. fucked me up, dude. Yeah, it really does. 
So this film had premiered at the 2016 Cannes Film Festival, and it was then released in France, then Denmark, and then finally the United States. The budget was around $7 million for this, but the box office revenue only reached about $3.4 million. Yeah, so, no one wanted to pick it yeah, up. Yeah, it wasn't want to distribute quite it. Uh, a favorite. But it's understandable, I guess, because there's a lot of uh, very uncomfortable moments. I mean, this whole movie makes you feel uncomfortable, even though it's talking about beauty, which is supposed to be a very pleasing, comfortable kind of thing, you know? Ruffin, the director, is not new to film failures either. Yeah, that sucks. He, like... For the first two or three Pusher movies, he was in about six million in debt for each movie, and he's—they even made documentaries around that time, and like the amount of stress that you could see on him. That's why he like he pushed to make different stuff. I know that in this movie particularly, he wanted to explore something and do something he's never done before. Right. Uh, I was looking into a little bit about his inspiration for writing this, and. Uh, it was kind of funny. In an interview, he said that he's never really felt like he was beautiful like visually beautiful and he wanted to explore the concept of beauty but not in a way to criticize beauty but rather to explore it as a complex topic which i believe beauty definitely is a complex subject he also mentions he got a lot of inspiration from his wife who he thinks is like the most beautiful person ever isn't that sweet (laughs) (laughs) and like i think this is the only movie that i think this is his wife's favorite movie is what she mentioned as well yeah like she's it's the most like proud I mean, she's most proud of this movie out of all the movies that he's made. It's really good. And it's why we're talking about it, because there's a lot of layers to go through on the film that you might have just missed the first time through because of what was going on visually. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's something I want to talk about is the implicit and explicit nature of the scenarios in this movie. I personally feel like a lot of this movie was very implicit. Like, they never exactly show everything fully or explain everything fully. It's kind of up to you to fill in the pieces. And in a way, I feel like it made it all the more uncomfortable to watch. They pushed the uncomfortable scenes into a surreal space to make it seem like you weren't exactly seeing what was happening. There was more that was happening and that you may not necessarily know what's going on when it's happening. And this added to the whole surrealism that extends through the, like, the entire film. Right. So how do you feel this presentation of the scenarios made you like observe the situations? So as far as the film being mostly implicit, I, I agree with that, though there are some things, some things that are just explicitly oh, said definitely. or explicitly yeah. shown, such as like the ending scene. She's <laughs> like, she's inside of me and she's trying to get out sort of idea. But then you have the runway scene, what we were talking about, where it's really like uh, the the perspective on this is very very how would I, it, it's very implicit in that she is falling in love with herself while doing this runway moment yeah well. that was uh something that we were talking about we we're talking about the runway scene a lot after we watched it and it reminded her... us both of the story of narcissus yes and ancient mythology and narcissus basically fell in love with his reflection and eventually fell into the water and drowned, which is kind of noted at the end of the movie. I thought he starved to death. There's there's a it, few versions oh, of it. Yeah. yeah. But in in all of them, the reason why is, is self-deprecating. So yeah. yeah. Because he becomes obsessed with himself. This, this is like one of the key moments in the movie because this is like her transformation, her rebirth sort of. Also her initiation into like the cult of what is 
fashion in their world yes and how it connects to them like being witches and the occult and uh like other pagan symbols that you might see throughout it including that triangle that's like behind her yeah i wanted to mention that because like throughout the movie she is this small girl from georgia She's 16. She's in a new area, doesn't know anybody. She's very but mousy and shy. She gets that first push when uh, the person's like, just lie about your age. And then you could work with these people. And she gets handpicked by that guy to do the gold scene. And after that, that is like the pushing point where her journey starts. Well, not really starts, but the tipping point. Because then after that, she feels more confident for herself. She like glosses over the other fucking uh, model that was like, who was hating her at the party. Right. Basically, I heard your fucking parents are dead. Oh, just my like, yeah, God. I believe that was Sarah. Slights her just a little bit, and she's like, hey, I heard your parents are fucking dead. And you're like, oh, my God. Just like the savagery <laughs> yeah. among these women. Like, oh, my By gosh. the way, this character, Sarah, is played by Ab- Abby Lee Kershaw, who is actually a well-known model. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Shit. They had actual models in these roles. All right. Damn. So it must have been extra, like, tough for them to go through some of these things. And very it's personable. Real. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if the co-writers for this script were also had some connections to the modeling industry or at least studied it somewhat. Yeah, definitely. I feel like they really did their research as far as, like, what sort of feeling embodies being in the fashion industry. It's very obsessive and it's very competitive and that can translate in a lot of different ways so there's two things that you guys brought up while you were discussing just now the first was that she's very innocent the main character and she arrives in los angeles but there's a guy that she's seeing who's totally okay with the fact that she's underaged oh yeah oh yeah the very it's very meant to be like the like relaxed like not so bad character but he's still dating yeah that's kind of the interesting part about this movie i felt is that the who you think the antagonist is shifts constantly throughout the movie at the beginning when i first watched it i thought that her little boyfriend was definitely like an antagonist just with that opening scene where they were doing the photo shoot and she was laying on the couch yeah dead so that's great so we really should rewind just a little bit yeah so in the start you see her on a couch which looks like she's bleeding out from her neck she's essentially dead on a couch and it's important to note that because the movie starts there and ends there so you, yeah. you kind of get foreshadowing and tone set up right at the beginning for how the movie is going to play out. And then the boyfriend, to me, sort of represented like what society might see as normal a lot of the time, yeah. which is that most men will date younger than themselves. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it was very extreme because she's underage. And most people won't really bat an eye at that whenever they see couples that are like that. And they won't say anything about it. So that was like the movie's bar for what is normal. And then it moves on from there. Or, or how like beauty can be an indicator of age to some people. Also as that. Well, yeah, like definitely. I'm not saying that I'm particularly beautiful, but I remember being very young and I, I used to have a lot of people assume that I was older just because I looked a certain way. I had more fuller features or this, this and that, you know. The other thing that you guys had mentioned was the scene where she has uh, a private photography session with that one photographer who covers her in gold paint. Right. And this scene is super important because you had mentioned something about it. You want to you wanna explain or you want me to? What did I mention about it? <laughs> well, okay, I'll go ahead and show it. <laughs> so, so this scene, he tells everybody to leave. And it's only him and her in this. And he tells her immediately to remove her clothes. So you're already getting allusions to like what happens in certain castings where it's like they're trying to get see like what are the limits of the model and what can they do privately. 
so that they could like climb some sort of social ladder. And this entire scene is meant to make you feel uncomfortable as uncomfortable as she feels in the scene because he's slathering paint all over her, touching her inappropriately, but there's no nudity. Yeah, that was something you had mentioned as we were watching this, is that the director made a point not to explicitly show any nudity. Yeah, so there's no there's no nudity for the sake of looking at a naked woman's body for pleasure. There's only nudity at the end when they're washing the blood off of themselves. But that's, we'll even, get to that. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, even then, that's not a comfortable scene to watch. Yeah, because they're literally covered in blood. Yeah. Also, specifically, Elle Fanning is 16 years old in this role when she started filming the movie. Oh, so she's 16 in real life, yes. too. And then uh, midway through, she turned 17. And when it premiered, she was finally 18. Holy shit. Wow. So that just, yeah, that just adds more on top of it. The, the main piece here is that this was a movie that used something that I've mentioned before on film, which is the idea of the male gaze. So things are made specifically so men can enjoy it, which is usually nude women. In this case, there is no nudity unless you're uncomfortable at the same time. So you're uncomfortable then, you're uncomfortable when those women are covered in blood. And I think there was one more scene where, oh, when she's laying on her back in front of the moon. Oh, yeah. And she like menstruates out onto the floor. I want to talk about that later. Yeah. <laughs> I got something about that. Yeah, we'll definitely get to that one. So, so that's the point is that all of them were made to make you feel uncomfortable and to understand that these moments happen consistently. And then they're made to think that it's normal, that like this is something that the pho- the photographer just does because it's like his method. Mm-hmm. I thought he was very Los Angeles-y, which makes sense. Like he doesn't say hi. He doesn't look at people until they're introduced. You, yeah, like, it's wild. He's wearing super nice Nikes. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's wearing Fresh. super nice Nikes. That's funny. And like, he will fire or put someone on immediately if it seems fit to him. Right. I also, I really like the idea of uh, these three women hovering over this one girl because she has what they don't have. Natural beauty. Natural beauty. And she even mentions it like, oh, do you think like I should go back to my fucking... Uh, my my surgeon Andrew I mean he does amazing work he's done like seven or eight operations she's like why would you do that yeah so that was interesting in the three main antagonists is how they present beauty now there's Ruby who is the makeup artist yeah and she's essentially the leader of their coven per se yeah and I feel like she i wouldn't say that she's ugly i think she's actually very attractive but she's not a model and so in a way the beauty that she presents or pretends to present is internal beauty she's very kind and gentle and is trying to help this girl out you know give her a helping hand she's like the buffer between like models and like photographers she even does that when she first introduces her and wants to stay like Mm -hmm. even though he's asked everybody to leave yeah and then there's sarah who is hasn't really had much work done or at least she doesn't talk about it and i feel like in a way she represents natural beauty but what's on the inside isn't as beautiful as what's on the outside and she's that's rotten where, on the inside yeah that's where the clash comes and then there's Gigi, the last one who is the plastic surgery queen so she represents manufactured beauty yeah exactly i think the big thing with sarah is that yes she is beautiful and she's a great model but she will never be the fresh thing on the corner because the right. new thing is coming yeah, out. Yeah, I'm Did sure at some Jessie? point. Yeah, at some point she was probably in Jesse's position and yeah. she was hot shit, you know. But as we all know, or hopefully some of us do understand, that when it comes to things like the modeling industry, you're only hot while you're a topic, 
you know as soon as people stop talking about you you become irrelevant and that's the case in a lot of celebrity statuses people who are musicians actors when you're not hot you know no one really pays attention to you you become a ghost like she mentions in one line well they mentioned at some point that this uh time frame that you're talking about is very short like i think they said if you're over what age 21 21 yeah and then they were also talking about how like the girl was buying whale fat for her skin and uh one of them scoffed because it's like why do that you know when i mean she was like i can't believe it can you believe trying to continue in this line after the age of 21 and then the other the male like makeup artist was like try 20 yeah (laughs) yeah that was brutal just to to hear them just blatantly talking about stuff like that we've also talked about this comparison of like the newest person on the block in um the what was the black swan where the comparison is made that the new girl doesn't look like she's faking it when she's enjoying her time dancing Mm -hmm. in the same way they see her having this natural beauty and just being a natural at being a model and they're all envious of that sort of like abilities like quote-unquote ability because they even she even mentions herself that she's not good at anything else but she knows that she's attractive and she's using that to make money right so that makes me wonder uh how do you guys feel about beauty? Do you think that beauty is an important quality in a person? And how do you perceive beauty? Is your perception of beauty the same as someone else's? I personally feel that beauty, like the boyfriend thing, is in the beholder. I mean, beauty is a thing that you see on face value. Uh, and I believe that people have much more to offer than just their looks. Although it depends on what you're asking, because if we're talking... I'm talking to a person of the same sex or the same gender. Typically, I don't really care what they look like. They're just going to be someone I know. But right, it's like if we're talking about thing. opposite sex people that I'm attracted to personally, I mean, beauty does play a factor. It is in all in, in the rules of attraction. Beauty will always be a factor no matter where you are on the spectrum. That, that makes me think of something uh, in a class that I take. And we we're talking about the science of beauty and what is beauty can it be defined and essentially what beauty comes down to is normalcy so if you are normal looking if you're symmetrical yeah basically then you're considered beautiful symmetry is beauty and a lot of times it comes down to just genetics and that's not really something we have control over um i feel like it's changed for me uh since i got older so like when i was like 16 to like 18 maybe even like 19 and 20 it was very superficial like i was looking for a specific kind of person for what they looked like or what i thought was attractive but the thing is is that i had influence from my parents as well where like my mom very explicitly told me she did not want me to date white people <laughs> she where she was like I, she's like i don't want any white people within the family and so she had a very like distinct thing that she had told me about what not to do and so that was kind of like the beginning of where i had started so i was i was looking for people who were (laughs) were not white and like it sounds funny but it's it's because of a larger problem that she was seeing with like growing up herself which which was the big cultural difference as far as like they may not understand how certain families are and so they'll have a tougher time integrating into your family because what's the ultimate goal for like hispanic families they want you to have kids and get married (laughs) and like get into and be able to like bring in more someone who's going to be fitting into the family really well and so originally it was very superficial like who would be the ideal person that would fit into this category and then as i got older i realized that a lot of the people that i met that i thought were really attractive there wasn't a lot of substance behind it 
I found often that people who were really, really attractive used that to their advantage on every place they could and often didn't have any other skills. And that's actually something that Elle Fanning mentions in the beginning of the movie when she's out on her first date with her boyfriend or I wouldn't really say he's her boyfriend, but she says, you know, (laughs) I don't really have any skills. I can't dance. I can't act. I'm not really good at anything, but I'm pretty. Yeah. And that pays. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a question, John. Do you feel that if someone is by all means beautiful, I'm we're talking like if we were to put it on a scale of one to 10, an actual 10, but their heart and their intention inside their heart is not good. Do you find that person unattractive? Oh, yeah, totally. I've met people who are insanely attractive, but their personality makes them really rotten. Or they're shallow. Oh, yeah. Or, you know, they're just, it mm-hmm. makes you change your perception about it. Like, yeah, you're beautiful, but your heart is black and I don't support you. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, what do you think? I mean, beauty, beauty, it, I mean, it depends on what purposes are we looking at beauty for. You know, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Are, are we looking at it? Are we picking a sexual partner? Are we picking? Are we picking right. somebody to represent a brand or something like that? Are right. we picking someone to put on the front of our magazine or whatever it is? So I guess it really comes down comes down to like that. Like if I'm looking for yeah, what's the a, purpose? I, if I'm looking for someone to be in a relationship with, I, I, there like two things have to be met. Like two categories. Like I have to be somewhat sexually attracted to them because right. that's important to me. Mm-hmm. And then it's and then at some level I also have to mesh with them on like a personal level and I have to be able to have a communication and discuss ideas and they also have to be a little open minded perhaps you know to yeah. you know the relationship maybe not working as ideal as they want it to be so that really it comes down to its face value and then it's also like what's going internally but that's for relationships now when it comes to brands you're looking for symmetry you're looking what's going to catch people's eye you're going yeah. to look right you know and that and that just comes down to like that's just like capitalist like yeah oh yeah well and there's ideas. a standard that they're that they've set and it's been consistent for however long like the say like the magazine the fashion magazines have existed right and it's interesting that you guys mention uh, basically consumerism in yeah. the you in the world of beauty because I feel like something that's touched on this very explicitly is how people who are in the beauty industry are themselves consumed and in this case quite literally in the way of the movie. Yeah, yeah the <laughs> word choice is specific when it talks about people who are consumers in the same way that people who use say like Google or other things like that, they're users. The only time you reference somebody who's a user is someone who uses drugs and someone who uses technology. And yeah. it's mentioned specifically in like one of the documentaries I saw lately where that they do that because they want you to feel a certain way about using these items where everything that the fashion industry comes out with, you are in fact consuming that. And then it got taken literally in the movie where they eat her at the end of the yeah. film. She became cannibalized by her other like comp- her competition, basically. I mean, do, does anybody think now... Now, since this the, this movie does harken back to like the Elizabeth Bathory story, I was just yes. about to and mention, the, and like the, our our Hungarian like serial killer who bathed in virgin blood. Yeah, she. <laughs> I think she killed over six hundred people. Oh, they so reported. many people. Yeah, it's it's, it's a great story. And there's she a, used her position of power to do so. Yeah, there's there's some there's there's a great Venom song about it. That's great. <laughs> um, anyway, but that's that's all I'll say about that. But yeah, but but harkening back to that and like literally like consuming some someone but um because they because virginity is a symbol of purity right yeah. that's that's something that we all we all all agree on that's that's what it, supposedly <laughs> supposedly yeah. but in the in the grand scheme of like symbology typically that's how it's it's represented so 
at the time, Ruby, I believe it's Ruby, Ruby attempts to seduce her. Oh, yes. man. oh man. And do you believe, <laughs> I, th- I believe this, that Ruby was trying to save her from them by corrupting her. In a Qu- way, quote, yes. Unquote, corrupting her. She was trying to bring her into the coven to join them. Yeah. yeah. I think she really did start to feel for her and realize, wow, she's kind of a cool person. That would have been like a sort of initiation. If yeah. she had agreed to a sexual encounter with her. There was even a line her. in the beginning when they go to the party together, which is really uh, Jesse's first experience of these people. And they're in the, the dressing room. Sorry, not the dressing room. The bathroom doing yeah. their makeup. Are oh, you talking about the fucking scene? Yeah. She was like, well, there's also that. But when they're talking specifically about the lipstick, she asked, if what you had a names? color named after you, would you be food or would you be sex? Mm-hmm. And in the end, when the sex was rejected from Ruby, she became food. Oh, shit. Yeah. I didn't even see that. Yeah. That's real. It's also strong commentary about what they do as far as cosmetics go. Look at any piece of cosmetics and you'll see that the names are exactly what they described. It's either food or sex. It's something desirable. Everybody needs to eat. Everybody loves food and everybody loves sex. Well, people who designed makeup, they did it so that people would feel more attractive so they could get to these goals. At least that's the idea that they had come up with. Of course, it's become something that's different because people do makeup just for themselves. But the idea when they first made it was that so you could be more attractive to other people. Yeah, Yeah, but now we have, damn girl, you're a whole ass snack as a fucking line. Yeah. Literally food. (laughs) I I mean, food is the one the one binding thing that everyone can all discuss every time. Yeah. Everyone will have an opinion about food. Yeah. And in a way, it's the same thing with beauty. Everybody has their own opinion about beauty and their own unique perception about what is beautiful. One thing I want to pull up which I was not expecting. There's fucking necrophilia in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. shit. <laughs> That's right. Oh, my God. How did I forget about the wuss? Oh, the- oh, my God. How did I forget about that? She spit in the corpse's mouth. <laughs> yeah. She, she like, like, she put her tongue in there. Ruby did. For, for, Ruby put yes. her tongue <laughs> in the dead she, person. She was fantasizing about yeah. uh, Jesse because she couldn't have her. And well, she, she got rejected. Yeah. She got yeah. rejected. She even said, like, let me be your first. Yeah. And she got rejected hard, so that she took it out on this corpse, who I thought was her friend at first. She yeah. kind of looks like her yeah, friend. Yeah, it did look like somebody who was very similar. It should be mentioned that while they were filming that scene, everything that happened during that scene was not planned. He had yeah. originally told her that just to give her a kiss and to like probably get on top, but apparently she got into the scene and he was like, yeah, just fucking spit in your mouth, and she did. Yeah. <laughs> and it just kept going. So when I was looking at something about this scene, this was only like the second scene that he had filmed with this actress, yeah. so they didn't even really know each other it's that wild. well. And then as things just carried on, he was like, you know what, why don't you do this? And it it just progressed to how Some it was. Softcore porn. And they just yeah. roll in, and he's like, "All right, so there's this like fake corpse over here. I'm gonna need you to climb on it and start making out with it." What's All really right, go? What's really <laughs> like crazy about that entire scene is like the the set is an actual morgue, and the yeah. her manager is an actual mor- mortician. Yeah. And as well as that, there was also another unplanned line in the movie that was delivered by Keanu Reeves. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, when he talks about all oh, that Lolita shit in room fourteen. Wait, like, let's talk about Keanu Reeves yeah. for a second. <laughs> His character was very unexpected. I think I had wanted to watch this movie specifically for Keanu Reeves. And then when I saw the character that he was playing, I did... Uh, wow. <laughs> he takes on the form of like one of the potentially most dangerous kind of men you can meet, who is not only facilitating bad things happening, he tells other people about it and expects them to be okay with it. 
especially when he talks about, hey, you should go check out that room when there's like underage girls. And he specifically refers to the Lolita thing, which is like a whole category of internet porn that exists. Not even that. It was just referenced to the movie originally that yeah. was made by Stanley Kubrick. Also that. Yeah. Where the guy specifically has a crush on like a 13 or 14 year old child and like tries to go out of his way to date her that movie's so fucking inappropriate and, but, but the line in question is room 14 it's got to be seen was improvised yeah it's a very large step away from john wick <laughs> from, so like, seeing him in this kind of role yeah. and then the thing is like with the premonition too where she believe where she thinks that he's gonna put the knife in her mouth yeah that was another thing is Super i important. feel like this premonition was actually given to her by the witches I think they were warning her in order to get her closer to them. Uh, it, I, I agree. I think it could have been definitely something that they had created in the same way that one of them may have possibly turned into a cougar and jumped into her room. Yeah, that was one of the first things that happened when she stayed at that motel is she comes home late after a shoot opens her door and there's something in the darkness. Now she right. goes to get Mr. Keanu Reeves and his buddy to go check it out. And it's a cougar. But he hand, but he thinks something different. He thinks that she may be a sex worker and that the person who was in there with her, she doesn't want him in there anymore or he's not paying or something. Because when he walks up there, he's like, all right, dude, the show's over. Like he assumes it's a man. He assumes that she doesn't want him there anymore and then is going to kick him out. And they've done it before because he brought him with him. He brought the other dude and he has a bat. They know exactly what the situation is because that's what he does in his sleazy motel there. Yeah, and I imagine that was the whole deal with uh, 214 as well is right. that – he knew that she was a prostitute and she probably got some sort of like. Uh, well, he mentions that it's an underage girl who's like running away. She ran yeah. away from Ohio. Yeah. And uh, typically, not typically, but a lot of times in these situations when you have an underage girl who's trying to make her way to a big city, one of the biggest industries there is prostitution. Yeah, you end up getting into sex work, basically. Yeah. But there was, there was two things that we mentioned already. The first was the scene where it seems that Keanu Reeves goes into her room and forces a knife into her mouth. Yeah. And is like pushing it further into her mouth. And there's been a few interpretations of it. One of the ones I saw that was interesting was that this could have been her personal fear of penetration of mm -hmm. whether or not like basically your fear before you have sex, like you don't know what's going to happen. And also the, the kind of general idea that most sexual encounters are started by men. It's almost never going to be the woman who starts it because men are so forceful about these kind of things. So it could have been that it could have been something the witches did where it was dangerous either way it's it's a warning about like yeah. you know certain men may treat women a certain way right and then after that you know after she has the premonition she wakes up somebody's trying to get into her room so she hurries and locks the door to which then she hears something going down in the room next to her which would be 214 that sounds like someone's getting murdered yeah that was the other piece was that if it's not going to happen to you it might happen to somebody that's very close to you yeah in this case literally which is also turns into an amazing cinematography shot of her leaning up against the wall and she's like it's just a circle of light as she's like listening to what's happening as it moves yeah, out Yeah, you just see her silhouette listening yeah. which is like out. just a visualization of how helpless you might be in a situation like that because she can't leave herself she's probably going to get in danger and then the person she runs to then tries to sexually assault her in the following scene, which is when she rejects that girl. And it could happen. I mean, like, that's the thing I also wanted to mention. Like, they're, the director is also trying to show, like, not only can it happen with men, but also women. Right, exactly. Yeah, because in this case... She was saying no multiple times. Yeah, and in this case, it ended up being the woman that hurt her the most. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, other women. In, in, in some way, I feel like they were sort of pitted against each other. 
because of like the competition to be like the best model or to be in someone's favor, to be like in the photographer's favor, to be in the guy who designs clothes, to be like in like the fashion show, like when the main character gets to be the closing model in the fashion show is like something that just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Like that was purely for the movie and to have her like her rebirth moment that we had mentioned earlier. Right. So that brings me to the question, who is the neon demon? It's Jesse, but only after she goes through the transformation. Yeah, I believe so too. Well, didn't we kind of discuss that there w- there was a large possibility that she just gets like her body gets invaded by the demon? Right. So there's this interesting take on the movie that I looked at where, you know, you have the coven of witches and not only do they need to consume the flesh, but they need to consume the flesh of a demon. And so in the beginning, when they take her to that party and there's the strobing lights and she starts to walk into the light, that's basically the beginning of the possession. And then she's full on possessed after the runway show that you even see a personality transformation. She dresses different. She stands up for herself more. And at that point, she starts to transition into the more narcissistic side of things, less of the genuine natural beauty and starting to transition into the industry beauty. Do you do you think that the advances from both men and women in this case pushed her more inward into into analyzing just herself? So if all of these people are going to treat me like shit, I might as well. I'm probably just the best thing that there is. Yes. She yeah. mentions that to the guy that she's like dating, not dating. She's like, no, you don't understand. I don't want to be like them. They want to be like me. That's like one of the lines she has because she's had the transformation at that point where she's like, no, they're actually trying to be like me. I'm the important thing right now. Yeah, there was that whole diner scene. And it's because of what you mentioned, because of what had happened to her already. It made her really, really like narcissistic about what had been happening up until that point. Mm -hmm. The, The whole diner scene was really uncomfortable. Oh, I love talks that about scene. It? It's so blatant. Like yeah. it's, it's so it's like crazy. What they, I fully believe that people have these dinners that you go to a dinner with this really pompous asshole who's going to tell you right to your face that you're like ugly and you have to be OK with it. So I wanted to talk about this diner scene a little bit. Now, the conversation that they're having between the casting director and Jesse's friend, boyfriend, person he's is a really designer intri- too, right? Yeah, he's, he's a like a designer fashion designer as well. Yeah, he's he's pretty high up on the food chain in the fashion fashion industry. But I wanted to talk about this conversation because I feel like it really shows the differing perspectives about beauty. Is that I feel like somebody who's around beauty all the time has or works in this industry has a very unique perception. versus somebody who is a consumer of beauty you know like the photographer jesse's boyfriend would be and in this conversation they were talking about you know uh i believe the casting director says beauty isn't everything it's the only thing yeah and he also mentions that people can tell natural beauty and they can tell when people have had work done on them yeah and in his eyes someone who's had plastic surgery is not a natural beauty and is not as beautiful as say somebody who is naturally beautiful yeah and it shows the perspectives about beauty because i feel like we've gotten kind of accustomed to fake beauty Mm -hmm. and to ask for natural beauty can be really frustrating for people that have spent thousands of dollars to look a certain way because that's what they were told to do you know in order to get ahead in their career i think what was also like very I don't know, uncomfortable is hearing like beauty is a currency because I've never heard that term like that, but it makes sense. It makes sense in the, in the line of work. Yeah. Like but, I feel like, but like you were saying also yeah. around the whole world, 
like just in general in life in general yeah definitely and that brings me to think about how I even perceive beauty because for a while I wanted to be one of those people that was like beauty doesn't really matter it's not about what you look like it's what's inside which is definitely true you know what's inside does matter but everybody subscribes to beauty standards whether they're conscious of it or not and to ignore that is kind of like you're, you're not giving credit where credit is due you know yeah, he's also getting at the idea of the standard that exists currently, like, say, in the United States, where the current standard is the European beauty standard, which is blonde hair, blue eyes, very thin, light Eurocentric. Skin. Yeah. So that's, like, the typical thing you'll find in models, and you see it in all the models in this movie. It's, like, the top fashion industry models are usually going to have that one same look, and they're not going to be too different from each other. Right. I think that's why when... I believe it's Sarah, right? The tall one. When she does not get the job, but Jesse gets the runway, she, and she immediately throws a trash can at the fucking wind at the uh, mirror, and yeah. Jesse cuts her hand. She immediately starts sucking on the blood because she wants. She just got rejected, and she wants the beauty that Jesse has. Yeah. And then so she's like consuming herself so she could get that beauty. Also, so, your first sign. Yeah, that scene is sort of like foreshadowing what their intentions are of this girl because essentially this girl is a part of their beauty ritual in that they need to consume the blood and flesh of a virgin in order to maintain their beauty that they have. And, you know, I feel like why they had to wait is because they're waiting for the demon to fully manifest. But at that point, uh, Sarah was just, she was ready to have the blood now. She was feeling defeated and she was like, no, I want this beauty in me now. I want to be recognized again. So then, what do we think of the ending? Ah, yes. What are your final thoughts on it? Do you think it ended well? Was it weird? Did you not understand it? I liked it a lot. It's a little confusing for some people, I know. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the ending scene. So the very, very, very ending when they're going to the last photo shoot, the two models, the, uh, essentially Jessie is murdered at the house where she's being kept by Ruby. And after that point, it is obvious that they have killed her. They're covered in blood. They have that sexy, bloody shower scene, you know? The- yeah, depending on your kinks <laughs> and interests, this might, be, this might be the moment where you're like, I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> or you're like, this is really fucking uncomfortable. Yeah. I, I mean, but let's be honest. What's the bath. hotter than a bunch of women covered in blood? The bath, <laughs> though, <laughs> Bathing like, together. Just yeah. bathing in blood together. Come on now, guys. So like, after that, you see so Gigi and metal. Sarah going to a photo shoot with the creepy photographer guy from the uh, earlier scene, the gold scene. <laughs> and you know there's this younger model there who's basically talking shit about other models as she's getting her hair and makeup done and saying how she had that line that we've mentioned earlier about basically no one cares about you after 21 yep so how do you keep up with beauty standards (laughs) has anyone ever like beaten you like has a girl ever beaten you out of a job what'd you do about it I ate her. That was so great. Quite yeah. literally. What a great delivery for that line because it's like, we know she ate someone. Yeah. But they think it's just a joke. Like, yeah, you know, I eat my competition. Uh-huh. And essentially, uh, Sarah, the one who delivered that line, ends up in the photo shoot because the other girl gets kicked out, which probably means the spell was working, you know? Yeah, she manifests that, like, the new job that she gets for that. Mm-hmm. And then there's Gigi. Gigi can't handle it. Gigi can't handle the guilt. She can't hang. She can't hang. She's obviously new to this coven. And she starts feeling serious guilt and remorse to the point where she then uh, stabs herself in the stomach to try and get the body of Jesse out of her. guts herself. Yeah. 
after puking up an eyeball, which is fantastic. Oh, I wanted the yeah. eyeball to move so bad. Same. <laughs> yeah, I was just hoping it would just move and like look at her like one final time. It would have been great, but they did not go that route. What they did instead was have the other girl come in and eat the eyeball, and she was salivating at that point when yeah. the eyeball was on the floor. Like, it, like, drips from her mouth. And she was totally unbothered by the fact that her friend just gutted herself. Goes back and does the shoot. Yeah, she just, okay, got to finish this eyeball off, go back to business. <laughs> yeah, it was good. I like the ending. Yeah, it, it really... It'll confuse yeah. regular people, I believe. Well, it's like, it gets really surreal at that moment where this is... They're, they've eaten someone. Nobody said anything. Nobody knows anything about this girl. They're continuing their job like nothing had happened. And so this is like such a strong point of like what happens to people constantly. It was also a perfect setup considering she was new in town. And like you said, yeah. she didn't really know anybody. So there wouldn't really be family to look for her because nope. as you know, in the beginning, she mentioned that her family was dead. Which also might have been a selling point for the witches. Like, here's this hot well, young girl. That's why they wanted girl. to bring her in. Yeah, no one knows who she is. She has no family. No one's going to notice if she goes missing. I'm glad you bring up the fact that Gigi is new because uh, what's the red haired girl's name? Ruby. Ruby is not. Ruby. She yeah, even has she's that. like that, the leader. Well, she has that moment where she menstruates at the full moon. So, what I like, what I like, a lot of people believe is that after she consumes the blood of uh, Jesse. She's menstruating all the old blood out yep. and that she might have been doing this for a couple years, whether it be hundreds or thousands. Yeah, she the, there's the potential there that she's a very old witch and that she was, in fact, bathing in the moonlight at that point. So she could physically look younger in addition to being like bathing in the blood itself. So a lot of a lot of interesting things, but they're not said blatantly. But either way. It's a really good ending to the film, and I think this is a really good point to go yeah. on to the new movie or oh, the other movie that we Mar, talked about. you actually had something to say. Yeah. Yes. As we transition from the Neon Demon into the Love Witch. Love Witch is a fantastic movie, but something that I wanted to bring up was the importance of the critics for both of these movies. Both of them bring up the actor – or, sorry, the director, Russ Myers. So, uh, I don't, do you guys know Russ Myers? Yes. So, he is – an exploitation director, more like sexploitation director. And if you don't know what he's made, I'll just bring up the three that he's most known for. Uh, one of them being Super Vixens, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, and the, the one that is mentioned the most is Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. These movies contain women that kill men specifically, but they're also very much for the majority of the runtime are nude. Yeah. And the thing is, both directors had a relation to this in different ways so with the director of drive and the neon demon he embraced that and he said that that was actually inspiration for jesse that she was going to be a very small person but then after she gets her power she becomes more and more vicious she becomes more visceral just like in the valley of the dolls while anna biller for the love witch says the exact opposite she hates that dude she the guy that crit uh that said that like because there were many things that said that it was the Love Witch was a sexploitation movie, and it's obvious that Anna Biller was a Russ Myers fucking like fan. And she's like, I don't treat my fucking actresses like this. I don't like yeah. this style of editing. I feel offended that you would even compare that yeah, shit. Yeah, she was straight up offended. She yeah. was like, what? No. She's like, that is not what I made. And and it's, it's very interesting because I saw a weird take on it. They're like basically saying that uh, Russ Myers is like a symbol for like feminism and femininity is saying the same thing like Arby's is a fucking uh, icon for fucking cows. Shit. Yep. 
And then this is what I wanted to bring up, though, because we have not discussed this on the podcast about women in movies. So it was the I wrote this down. So a lot of people like to praise the Valley of the Dolls and all this stuff because the women in those movies take on male traits. They become very powerful. They kill. They are they use sex to get what they want. But here's what I here's what uh, a lot of people like to talk about with those things. The thing is, when we have stuff like Ripley and Aliens or like people like women going through these very masculine roles, it's like it's a trope that females act like men. So then it just reinforces the masculine traits within women. And so it doesn't it basically takes away from the femininity of feminine roles within movies. It says that the only uh, the only um, gender role that's going to be the most dominant and most powerful is the masculine. And it has to be both women and men getting into that as opposed to having a balance. of the and, two. Th- and that's the thing. Like when we just look at like badass women, we're giving them masculine traits. Right. And that's why I really like the love witch because she embraces her femininity in, in the movie so much as well as she even uh, says it to like her friend, like I believe we should do everything for men. Like we should give them sex. We should give them food. We should do that and embrace our feminine side because that's also a beautiful thing and it's very powerful. She also and, and ends those statements with a butt statement. Yeah. <laughs> but, because there are. Yeah, that's the thing because like her friend, she is against the patriarchy. She's like so like patriarchal. How could you do that? But she's like, but what we want is love and that's what will get us our ultimate end goal. Right, so I think this is a good time to start talking about the Love Witch officially. Sorry, I just thought that it was a very interesting <laughs> no, thing. No, I, I was going to bring that up, but honestly, you beat me to it. Sorry, Thank you. One, one, di- <laughs> one director loved the critics, the yeah. other one absolutely fucking hated it. It's really interesting because I feel like the roles represented of women are kind of similar in these movies, so are the yeah. situations, but the takes on them have been totally different as far as how the audience responded, how critics yeah. responded. Yeah, they've used their situations to gain control and power over their lives, but in much different ways right so let's talk about the love witch i'm really excited for this one i actually found this movie by accident by scrolling through tumblr many years ago (laughs) for obvious reasons it's very aesthetic but this is a 2016 american horror tragedy comedy that was oh okay it was written directed produced edited scored costume design and set design all by anna biller Let's give a round of applause for her. That's a handful. That is is her movie. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like it couldn't have been done any other way with how stylistic it was. It's so uniquely originally hers. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've seen anything else that's quite like it. So Anna Biller is an independent American filmmaker. She's a graduate of UCLA and Cal Institute of the Arts. Not surprised. (laughs) This is her second film she's done, and she likes to explore feminist themes throughout both of her movies that she's done. She gets a lot of influence from like early 1920s and 30s films. Yeah. uh, Some movies specifically that were cited that were inspirations of her were the movie Gertrude, Mm. Leave Her to Heaven, Black Narcissus, The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant, Poe Dan, and Gene Dealman. All, These, all pre-40s. Yeah. 23. Black and white movies, mostly. Yeah, and, and they all star all, women. Yeah, oh, they're all starring women. Yeah. Women's stories centered around women. Well, this was when, like, female directors were having a heyday in film, and there was no industry standards for the ratings on movies, so they can do whatever the fuck they wanted, and there was no big businesses to, like, tell them they had to take it a certain way. Right. 
So this film received uh, a limited release in the United States. I believe it was only really shown in like small theaters. Yeah. It wasn't really like a big theater thing. There wasn't actually a budget listed for this movie, but the box office revenue was only about like 250, well, yeah, $250,000 is what this Very movie low. made. Yeah, it I didn't mean, make a whole lot of money. I would assume that she made it on a pretty small budget. Yeah. It didn't look like it had too many complex things in it. Uh, what's interesting is this film was actually shot on a 35 millimeter film and was cut from the negative. So she did this OG style and it really shows in the aesthetic of the movie. It's all encompassing and everything, really. It's in Technicolor, right? Um, uh, I believe so. Um, uh, it's possible. It, it I looks didn't, like I didn't it. Look yeah, at it. it definitely looks like it's made in Technicolor. What's really interesting about this movie is it plays on aesthetics. Now, everything is very retro. The, the way that they talk and act, the makeup, the outfits, the scenes that they're in. However, this is set at the present time. There are some little breaks in that retro world that you're put in. For instance, there's modern cars that you'll see driven around. Now, the Love Witch, she, uh, that's Elaine Parks. She drives around like an old muscle car, you know, but everybody else is driving like, you know, modern Hyundais and Toyotas and stuff like that. And there's also cell phones, which is really off-putting, but those are the only really pieces of modern day that you see in these movies or in this movie. You know, this uh, th th this break in setting and time period is uh, accentuated usually when she's outside. It's something that I've noticed when she's walking around yeah. a park or something like that. You can say you can easily tell she's in the modern world. And then once she goes to like any of her, like when she goes to the burlesque club, yeah. when she goes back to her house, everything kind of entirely changes. It just entirely changes like the mood and everything about what's going on. Mm -hmm. I really like in the beginning her voiceover of like how she's explaining things. Right. And you, you keep coming back to this voiceover of her telling you like her internal feelings. And like some of the funniest bits of the movie to me are when she's like, look at this guy. He's such a fucking pussy. Like, why is he acting this way? Yeah. And like, this is like a constant theme running through it is that she, she, she wants certain things from these men and she's very explicit about it, but she also wants them to be able to handle like their emotions, to be able to like tell her like how they're feeling, what's going on. And every time it's too much for them. Right. So that brings me to what are you guys' initial thoughts about this movie? It's a lot to consume. Oh yeah. Um, Cause the thing is like when you watch this movie, not only do you think of certain time periods and certain genres, like, you could say, oh, satanic cult movie from the 70s. You could say, oh, a very nice love fairy tale from, like, stylized after the 1930s. There's a lot of stuff that you could, like, interpret, especially with the time period and, like, the aesthetics that we're choosing. Uh, I noticed that there were a lot of film inconsistencies, but I also thought that the voiceover was not well done. I thought it needed more grit and grain over it. But other than that, I thought the movie was fantastic. It has a lot of original ideas, and it's a very awesome depiction of modern wit uh, witchcraft and like wicca inside a movie and i've never seen one like this that was something i wanted to bring up as a practicing witch i really appreciate how much anna biller did her research before making this movie because very often the depictions of witchcraft and wicca is very like hollywood stylized but a lot of what she mentioned is very traditional uh some things not so traditional some things were added definitely for shock value but as far as like the ceremonies that they had, those are very like depictive actual ceremonies that would happen minus the rape, you know, of course. But that was a small section of that. I mean, there's so many little notes that if you are a practicing like witch or if you have like any idea with it, you see the three card future past, present 
tarot card layouts. You have certain uh, herbs that you may recognize if you are practicing that. They mentioned the sabbats and the celebrations, uh, things like Samhain, Maybon, Ostara, which was also something I wanted to mention. Uh, but I'll get to that, actually. Sa- I'll get same to that with, later. like, the throwing of the salt over the shoulder and stuff. Yeah. But there was something I wanted to mention. Like, it's not intended. It's, it Like, the dialogue is very dried in a way that's like i don't know if it was intentional not when i mean dry i mean like some people will say lines and they'll wait a while before they reply to it and it's i think it was an intended kind of thing kind of like the eraser head kind of effect it's it's very indicative of older films like if you you go watch anything from like 30s 40s 50s 60s you'll have dialogue very similar to what you saw in this trying to emulate human conversation And, and i really enjoyed this film i really liked it a lot but also, a part of me put down the little silhouette of like Mystery Science Theater three thousand on the bottom of the screen uh, because uh. like the, the it's very cheesy, it's very beautiful, and it's very fun. Like yeah. it's just I felt like this is the equivalent of uh, getting a lunchable in your fucking lunch when you're a kid. <laughs> so like, how did the style and design influence the way that you viewed this movie? Do you think it could have been done another way and still been the same? No, I mean it set the expectation for what you were looking at and what you were going to be experiencing in the film like i just from looking at the poster just from looking at trailers you know that the movie is going to be fun that it's not meant to be taken super seriously and that it's going to be something that isn't just a flipping of roles like what you had mentioned at the beginning where there's roles that women take on where it's just a role reversal where they do all the things that the men do that's not what this movie was not only was the role switched she was embracing that role while being feminine and so this was something that was uniquely original and pushed the film forward. It it was like it was like the dueling ideas of femininity. Yeah. Like 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 battling against each other. And this is like most well showcased when they're when it's the tea oh party. God, her land her landlady whose husband she sleeps with and then Trish. you have Yeah, Trish, yeah. Trish, Trish. the very posh. Yes. Uh, well, when they both like sit down, that's like the exact yeah. like they're like they're both have like um uh, aspects of femininity within both of themselves and how they live their lives. Right. However, it's like a very, like a different, like a slightly warped perception of both of them. Right. right. Yeah. Neither one is like on either end of the spectrum. There's somewhere along this sliding scale of like, how do you want to respond and act around men? And she right. mentions to her, like, I want to have sex. I want to have love. Don't you want to be loved? Like, you're supposed to be giving these kind of things. And that's something that's constantly brought up throughout this movie is the differences of what is feminism and what is what does it mean to be a respectable woman? Now, we've come to this time where feminism, feminism is definitely more in the conversation. And there seems to be a certain ideal that most people subscribe to that, like you would someone had, who mentioned it earlier about women taking on masculine roles. I did. Yeah, and I feel like that's sort of where this modern idea of feminism has been pushed, is that in order for a woman to be respected, she also has to take on roles of masculinity. Right. She has to take on masculine roles, but she also has to, like, take care of the idea of how people see her sexually. That's also, like, one of the biggest things, too. Trish also brings this up at their tea party because uh, Ah, they explain. She's like, oh, well, like, the thing is, like, if we keep holding on to these old values of femininity, how will we ever expect to be equals among our men, our male counterparts? Right. And this is where Elaine comes in and her differing view of femininity is that she fully embraces what is considered to be the feminine, what it means to be soft and caring and nurturing, which is essentially what the feminine ideal is. But also having her boundaries. 
Right, and also having boundaries. Like, she knows needs, what she wants. wants. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Her needs and wants need to be met, and that's what she's asking of them. And I think that's really where feminism feminism should be: is what do you want? And a lot of times, people are told what they want, and they just believe it. But she actually she knows what she wants, and she knows what she doesn't want. And what she wants is different from what maybe some other people want. Her idea of being respected is also being loved. Right. It's like that old conversation, like. Oh, they will never respect feminism if you're just going to be naked. Like that's something. It's like yeah, and right. It's that dichotomy of like some people feel more empowered with their body being naked, and more some people feel more empowered with their body being covered. It just depends on the person. Right, and that was something interesting that I really appreciated about this movie is when they were in their uh, ceremonies with the Wiccan Coven is they were in traditional dress. They were sky clad, which back in the day, not many people are able to do this anymore and not many people are comfortable with being sky clad, but sky clad essentially means that you're naked, except for possibly being covered by a certain robe that you would use for the ceremonies. And it's very empowering, one, to be naked. A lot of times in these rituals, the reason that they are naked is to remove any sort of external factors that might affect their energy and the flow of their energy. You can specifically blame 50s morals right for turning the idea of nakedness into something that was highly sexualized goes, it goes goes back to like puritan man this goes like way yeah. farther back and before this that goes, it was even that even before that it yeah. was like it was it was heavily that uh, yeah. i mean in the sense of like what we look at now in modern media it can be traced back to the idea that during the 50s and the 60s this is when gender roles were set like in fucking stone and they wanted women and men to act a certain way and then this is when you had like 10 years later like a decade you had the first wave of feminism and then another 20 years the second and then i think now it's like the third or fourth wave feminism that they're trying to like break through which is the split of are you going to be a respectable woman and have sex as much as you want or are you not going to have sex and be that respectable feminist woman that you want to be. And that's like the biggest battle between the break of what is modern feminism, because at least amongst women, and then the idea of men being brought into the conversation is also another thing that some people won't or will accept. Right. Going back to what, what Justine was saying about her, like our main character knowing what she wants. Right. And then this being a representation of feminism in a, in a way she sort of lives in like her own dream yeah. in a way because yeah. she's seeking out these men that don't exist. She's <laughs> seeking out this Prince Charming, which ends up being like the police, like the detective later, police officer, detective, <laughs> yeah. whatever. Griff. But yeah, Griff, Griff. There you go. Ends up being, Griff becomes like the Prince. Like she, she like, she sees almost everything that she wants, except this dude's about to take her to jail sort of thing right. for murder, et cetera. But I mean, but the thing is like, she's, <clears throat> I lost my point for just a moment, but I mean, she, she, she's fabricated her ideal and like, cause every time that she has like a man who she thinks is like the correct, they do something that they get too emotional. Right. And that's like a big problem yeah. now. And then she's seeking out things that just people are not like that. Well, they and can't it, like sort through it. It's not that yeah. they get too emotional. And it was interesting too, is like, I feel like her ideal man was sort of the embodiment of the masculine. When you think of masculinity, you would think of all the traits that she had listed, you know, someone who just kind of does what he needs to do. He's very assertive and strong, but he's also like, he loves her and he gives her that love, you know, but in a sense, I feel like this idea of this like hyper masculinity that's been pushed in society has made men emotionally unavailable because when you really start to push a lot of these masculine ideals, 
they pull you away from the emotional which is a lot of what the feminine is embodied in is emotion and when you have someone who's so masculine he becomes emotionally unavailable and that was the problem is even though she found this ideal man he couldn't love her because he couldn't feel love like the way she yeah, did he couldn't reciprocate the emotions that she was giving to him in the first place and that's the idea that she was getting at was a more positive idea of what she was expecting masculinity to look like for men and that was the idea that they can fill this role of what they were expecting while also returning any sort of affection they were receiving yeah it, it kind of reminds me of the spells that are used in the craft like when they yeah. use it yeah. on the one guy and then he becomes like obsessive yeah like that's what ends up happening with like a lot of the dudes that she does this to is they become obsessive they become very like not the ideal man in her mind anyway mm -hmm. and so it kind of I, I don't know it, it's interesting it's kind of like saying like chasing that is not even important because you're not going to ever find that perfect like balance that you want everyone is like is like a little chaotic mess you know, sort of ice sort of thing. She also mentions like it's about loving people, like even without with all their little quirks and little fucking things yeah. that they have with them. Like every time they smile, every time they get sad, it's about love. I mean, love is like you care about those little things, and those things, little things matter. Right. Well, she mentions those are the things that you end up caring about the most because you right. end up noticing these things that also, also brings me to the thought of unconditional love i feel like unconditional love is something that's pushed a lot in media and religion loving somebody no matter what no matter how horrible of a person they are but to be honest i feel like unconditional love is incredibly toxic because in a way you're sacrificing your own wants and desires in order to conform to this person's mess of a life that they have. This probably happens the most with family and with people that uh, you feel like are supposed to be like very close friends where you, you're feeling like you have to help them no matter what. And people shy away from the idea that you can just stop talking to someone if it's going to improve your health. Yeah, fuck marriage. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> I mean, I get that. Like, that's the thing, like, overextending yourself for someone who probably wouldn't do the same for you. Yeah. When you could completely just cut them out at. of your life. But, but I think, I think what the film was trying to get at was that she was trying to represent a, a more positive version of what femininity and masculinity can look like together. And it's what she was sort of looking for. It just takes an alternate route when she starts murdering people. <laughs> well, okay. She, she didn't, didn't kill nobody. anybody intentionally until That's the true. very end. Yeah. All of the other things were accidental because the men just fell victim to their own emotions. It, it, she even mentioned it. It became too much for them to handle. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. I think the transition for her character happens at the very end. Yeah. When she does decide to stab this guy because she's going to go to jail. And because he wouldn't love her. And hey, someone hunk. actually rejected her. Mm -hmm. uh, so I couldn't figure it out. Did he just like not get affected as much or did he like break from what was happening? His will was just too Gosh. strong. Right? It was, yeah, so was he too macho? Uh, I honestly thought it was going to go a different route. I thought when he rejected the love potion from her, I thought he was basically saying, like, you know what? I don't need a potion to show you that I love oh, you. Gotcha. I'll just love you. But it didn't go that route. She fucking murders him. Yeah. <laughs> I, did, you, did you guys think that at all? I don't know. I thought, like, in a way, he was like, I'm not going to take your potion. I'll just fucking enjoy you as you are. No? No, he just seemed like the kind of guy who was just going to be like, like his one main goal was, of course, bringing that sense of justice because like really like isn't that what most cops are? They feel like they have this 
huge sense of entitlement for something. And in this case, because of his role, he was like, no, I have to bring her in because she may have possibly killed someone. She did kill someone. Basically, her DNA was everywhere, all, all over the crime scene. Well, see, that that's one. the thing is that he technically died of heart failure. Yeah, and I feel like if she had actually thought she did something wrong, she wouldn't have left her DNA. Yeah, everywhere. she she wouldn't have like just left the apartment as it was. She was like, oh, he just died of a heart attack. Like, I mean, she did. She did like you know drug him. Yeah, she but, gave him like yeah, LSD, yeah, like yeah, a little toxic LSD. They did mention it was devil's toxic, weed. Yeah, toxic <laughs> devil's weed. Okay, oh okay. God. So maybe, maybe, maybe she kind of yeah, maybe. she kind of. I, l- let's not try to think that she's a good person here. Well, <laughs> like, she's definitely not, not a good person. But, but I don't think she's a completely evil person not, either. I think she wasn't conscious of the actions. I feel like she was so oblivious in her pursuit of love that she didn't recognize the consequences that right. come with pursuing such a thing. So immersed in like her own like little fairy tale yeah, exactly. of pursuit that she just doesn't even know that she's like potentially killing people or, or harming people in the process of mm-hmm. seeking that's so I, go ahead i thought the difference with richard was very very interesting <gasps> oh he was so lame <laughs> he was just so lame what as a, a person square. like not only is he like completely uninterested in his wife he cheats on her and then he's just like leave me alone like what the fuck do you want no, like, no it's not it's not even that it's like my wife when i tell her like i want to be an astronaut or i want to like act like a fucking yeah that cowboy, was the other end of it it was just like a guy that was heavily inspired from the 1950s serials it's just like she just thinks it's stupid and like i've never done anything crazy i've never had an affair he's like well and you then want ha- an affair has this new girl do love magic or sex magic <laughs> She uses sex magic to create love magic. There you go. And I love his death because before him, before he commits the biggest suicide, like a pussy, the Pisces he is. Uh, <laughs> I love the Pisces calling. That was a hilarious line. <laughs> He's a Pisces. <laughs> um, he has the tarot cards out, the past, present, and future. So with the past one, it was the nine of swords. And it's basically just like grief and feeling like feeling guilty so he's feeling guilty that he like fucking had an affair and then it has the three of swords which symbolizes like heartbreak basically being away from someone for a long time the feeling of loneliness and then finally for the future we have death dun 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 which death in tarot is not always a negative thing but in this case its placement did yeah serve it as being a negative as a visual marker yeah foreshadowing yeah, I, I really loved all of the symbolism and the tarot cards, how those served as foreshadowing. If you're familiar with tarot, they're definitely spot on of what goes on in the plot. Uh, I wanted to ask, how do you guys feel about witchcraft? Is this something that frightens you? Does it intrigue you? What are your opinions about it? It's cool. <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> I, like, I think the modern witch is a thing that's coming more and more prevalent within uh, women these days as well as men. I think both people are uh, embrace both sides of the coin are embracing it, as well as more with uh, astrology in that point. Yeah, I think uh, it's kind of hard to not talk about astrology these days with a lot of modern people, especially millennials and Gen Z. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the rise of witchcraft is directly relational to the rise of feminism that's been going on in our culture at least the past couple years, because witchcraft not only places women in a position of power, it also promotes equality between men and women. 
in covens there's two leaders a male and a female leader there's always the presence of duality between the feminine and the masculine and that was really interesting to see represented because in a way even though in Elaine, Elaine is in this very feminine role she also takes on some more masculine characteristics as far as like her pursuit of men like where she seduced the professor one of the first men she seduced in this movie it was very reminiscent of something that might happen on like a college campus but in reverse with a dude yeah you know much. the dude checks out this other girl and is like oh hey want to go somewhere and then proceeds to get her drunk and you know do the thing have his way but in a way she was in this role herself yeah she did she it. seduced this man she got him to take her somewhere she drugged him and had her way with him pretty much i mean as far as witchcraft goes i don't think it's ever made me scared not as not as scared as something like really like uh zealous uh abrahamic religion people do oh, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm gonna put them all in there all yeah. of, all of you Shove I'm them at all, the microphone. In that all of you suck by the way <laughs> all of you if you are abrahamic religion you suck all right anyway so uh. beside the point anyway but, but but like wiccan and stuff i feel like it it calls to something older than everything that at least like what like the general consensus of what is like a normal religion to follow right it, it stands in contrast to that as sort of its own counterculture as its own way of worshiping, as its own way to find, like, your own sense of enlightenment. Yeah. Which is what religion offers people for the most part and whatnot. But I don't, I don't, I wicked, I've just been like, good, go do that. If that makes you happy, <laughs> go, go do that. It looks, it looks way cooler than what everyone else is doing. So. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's really interesting when you start to get into more of, like, pagan and wicked culture. Right. Is that so much of the Abrahamic religions based their way that they do things off of these cultures. For instance, all of the holidays are directly related to pagan holidays. Right. For example, you have Samhain, which is actually how we would... Halloween. It, we would call it Halloween. We have Christmas, which is directly related to Yule. We have Easter, which Yule is usually time. related to Ostara, which is known as the time of fertility, which is essentially what Easter is. It, is. Yeah, it's rebirth, Easter. Yeah, exactly. you know, in essence. And I, I really like how they called to this older part of the religion. Right. How this was sort of the basis for everything, but it has been forgotten and misconstrued through time. Well, it's it, it, it has a lot of elements that to me make sense to exist together. So like one of the things is uh, like how you might feel mentally about yourself and how you're going to feel towards other people. One of the biggest things is like uh, what is sort of like your intention with things and what sort of intention you're going to bring to the things that you're creating. Yeah. And that's and like one of the biggest pieces that she does specifically in the film, but also how you can experience it. of spellcraft yeah, exactly. is your intention. Essentially, the intention behind the spell is the spell itself. Yeah. What you do for the spell doesn't really matter. What matters right. is the energy that you're putting forth into it. Yeah. And in this case, even though where she was coming from was sort of uh, a place of goodness. It was also misconstrued by the horrible things that have happened to her in her past, her relationships with men, how she's right. been sort of put into a box, or forced into a box, and that in a sense played on her intentions. Even though she was trying to find love, it was a desperate attempt, and that translated into her magic. The desperation translated into disaster. I'm glad that you bring up that it's like a very old thing that people have forgotten because she even mentions it in the film like oh detective like this is something that is older than all of your abrahamic religions this yeah. is my religion and it's something that i feel power from yeah and they also explain i don't know if they explain it slightly but they also explain like i think it's in the detective 
like actual like station. There's like white magic and there's black magic. What oh, you're intending? To that put guy your was energy. such a fucking hack. The, <laughs> yeah. the professor who was supposed to be like his expert on oh, witchcraft. Yeah. That dude didn't know anything. Like he was like assuming like pretty much the most terrible things that could possibly happen with those, which doesn't really make any sense because what she was doing seemed to me that it was like sort of the the herbalism that might show up in certain things, which makes sense because it's old school medicine, basically. Yeah. Like you could figure out what plants would help in certain situations. And then since people couldn't explain the science of it, they're like, oh, it's magic or it's witchcraft right. or whatever. Like, in a sense, she was doing these spells, but the things that she was giving to these men were things that were just grown from the earth. She was yeah. giving them plants. <laughs> that was the real magic there, yeah. was the hallucinogenic herbs that she gave them. And that's always been the relationship with people who are putting together certain potions and brews and things like that. Is they're like, they don't know what's in it. They can't explain how it works, but it does. So obviously it has to be witchcraft. And then you had, like Mitch mentioned earlier, the Abrahamic religions that were like, this is heresy. This is like not something that God wills. So we're going to hang everybody who's possibly a witch. That's fucking crazy, those Abrahamic religions. Like, they... That's witchcraft, man. They're, the stuff that they practice is similar to witchcraft in a way that's like, okay, you're putting your energy towards prayer. You're praying that this good thing will happen to you or the people around you. Yeah. It's all bad. That's it. <laughs> and even I, I, I've been doing a lot more research about traditional pagan ceremonies. And thinking back on my time when I was forced to go to church by my family, so much of the ceremony is directly related to how pagan ceremonies go, even like... I, I don't know if anyone did this at their church, but after we'd have our ceremony, we'd have like coffee hour where we'd have right. coffee and like little cakes and stuff. But in pagan tradition, after you have like some sort of ceremony, you would have tea and cakes after or wine and cakes where you would Party. serve wine, little cakes and food. It's a way to celebrate the energy that you've put forth and honor the gods in this good time that they've given you. You tell me that you're like, here's what I got to say, though. Go to church, take communion. Tell me that doesn't feel like a fucking ritual. Yeah. Uh, for real. You're eating the body of Christ, but whatever. You drink the blood and also eat the body. Is this blood. neon demon? I think the priest is just trying to get drunk. Ah, uh, right. Then why are they giving me fucking apple juice, dude? That wasn't <laughs> even wine. That juice. was just Welch's. You yeah. know? Like, <laughs> I'm just like, what are you doing here? Oh, oh my church gave us real oh wine. <laughs> yeah, for real. Okay. But I know what you're talking about. When I was in middle school and they would like hand out like legit bread and like Welch's grapefruit juice, I'd be like dipping it in there like, this is pretty fucking good. And I'm like, can I have more? <laughs> and they were like, what? No, this is supposed to be like a solemn moment. And I was like, I guess. Like, but like, I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah, like, like, well, this bread is so good. Like, like you just oh gave me God. a fucking loaf of bread like, can you hook it up with some more juice or uh, what? Where's that sourdough at? <laughs> my throat is dry. I cannot sing the hymns. Yeah, exactly. I do not wet my whistle. <laughs> and that's another thing is singing hymns. Singing hymns was considered to be a spell, you know? Yeah. Because you're calling forth this energy and you're using these words that invoke a certain thought. And your intention behind the song is very specific. And this right. is also something that happened in pagan ceremonies. We would read stories from the book and then we would sing songs to honor what we just read about. Yeah. It's also no mystery that most of the Abrahamic religions were used to expand certain empires, control over certain lands. And they hid it behind the idea that it was just a religious spread. And then you had the crusades. So it's like, I mean, <laughs> you I, mean, know? Yeah. I mean, I mean, and even then, like, oh, dang, I'm going to, the, the Crusades are even more complicated yeah. because the Crusades is not like one thing. Exactly. It's like nine of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like, and it's also a back and forth too. Cause then you've got yeah. like, you've got like Christians coming in and fucking shit up and then you've got Muslims going back and it's just a back and forth. Between and you the got the Roman them. empire changing parts of the Bible so they could touch little boys. 
Yeah. Oh, I mean. shit. <laughs> but that also brings me to the differing perspectives of religion. You have something like Wiccan paganism that is very much embodied in acknowledging both the masculine and feminine perspectives yeah. and way of doing things versus I feel like Abrahamic religions, they only have one God and their God is a man. And so much of their ideals are very embodied in the masculine. I mean, the origin story sets women up for failure. Yeah. And then you have the way that they handled spreading their religion is where it was forced upon people, which in a lot of ways is considered to be a masculine way of doing things by forcing yeah. something. Well, it was the whole thing that happened in the United States with Manifest Destiny, where they're like, I'm entitled to this land because God told me. Right. <laughs> Versus. And he's cooler than your God. Yeah. Versus when you have My something like paganism you. and Wiccanism, where you have the acknowledgement of both sides of the perspective and you're not really forced to do anything. Everything that you do is willing. There's something that they always say in these ceremonies is perfect love and perfect trust. And that's something that has to be done willingly. You can't, it can't be perfect if it's forced upon you. The, you can't force love big, and you can't force trust. A, a big, a big thing that I see with a lot of like, well, cause everybody who identifies themselves as pagan or believing in that is already subscribing to a really broad description of yeah. what that is. Yes, even, there's so many different subgenres you could say of right, paganism. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. And and even then, like every individual is going to worship it differently. There is no concrete. This is how to be a pagan. There is you're not yeah. gonna. Whereas you could do that for literally every other religion. You could be like, how do yeah. I want to be Christian? How do I want to be Muslim? How there's do I want to be black? You can yeah, there yeah exactly. And that was something also that's really interesting about witchcraft. Does not many people know this? But witchcraft is not directly related to any religion. It's commonly used right. in Wiccanism and paganism. However, witchcraft is a skill that is practiced, and it can also be tied into a religion. So while you can have pagan witches, you can also have Christian witches. You can have Buddhist witches. You can have all sorts of witches. You can have atheist witches for even that, you know. You could see it in a lot of older cultural ceremonies that are spread out through different religions. Yeah. And people might not see it necessarily as a ritual or some sort of magic, but it is tied indirectly to the intention of what you were trying to get out of a certain ritual or like festival, you could even say. Exactly. In some cases. And that's kind of the premise of what witchcraft is, is harnessing and directing your intention into something. I got to say the ceremonies in this movie, they look absolutely stunning. Yeah, they oh, put yes. a lot of thought into detail. You get to see little wieners. It's pretty cool. <laughs> That's you two are just chilling. <laughs> Ton, tons of flopping dicks. Yeah, and yeah. there's a lot of accuracy too with right. uh, even her initiation ceremony, where they tied her, tied a blindfold around eyes, yeah. her, tied her hands behind her back, and held a sword to her. This is actually something that does happen in traditional ceremonies because you're blinded. And you're bound, but still you're completely trusting the group of people that you're with. And there's something very special and unique about that. What did you say? It was true trust and true love. What is it? Perfect, perfect trust, trust. Perfect love. Perfect love. Beautiful. Perfect love. And perfect they stabbed the cup. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, like the ceremonies in this are wonderful. And, and like the uh, like the set design for all the parties afterwards, oh with like, whether, whether it be with the tea or uh, the summer solstice fucking... Oh, yeah, that, like, little medieval fair thing they had. That I thought it was awesome. was such cheese, but I loved it so much. Same. I really liked the super psychedelic sex scenes that are female-led. 
she is the one who's controlling all of the action and is not just like laying there and Whoa, taking it. Whoa, bro, those fucking colors. Like, even Give said me that. the rainbow. <laughs> Yo, takes off her jacket. It's I so can't. bright. And Give there's the a rainbow. rainbow on the inside of her dress. Did, I love the rainbow lining yeah, she has on great. everything. Did it's you, really cool because she just wears like all black, but there's a rainbow on the inside. Did you guys notice how high the mandolin player was? Oh, yeah. Oh, my he God. Was His, like, ooh, he was like fucking riffing it. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't someone playing like a recorder <laughs> at some point? Also, also, the Lucky Charms line. That, that was a mystery God. science theater fucking part. I mean, I mean, all of these things kind of like play into this sort of like, like, like going back to like the idea of that she has like this sort of fantasy yeah. that she's playing. She's through. a fairy yeah. tale fantasy. And it, all, and it all flows into that. Like, why does she go to the tea place and there's a random harp lady with like a crown of flowers? <laughs> yeah. that, like, no modern place has that. There's no way. It's like in her mind, like, that's like what would be the best, like, thing to happen right this there, really makes me think ideal. about whether or not she was then a very unreliable narrator that the possibility of her being in these public places they didn't actually look like that it's that just what she, was going on what in her she head. was perceiving and then everyone else around her was just normal and she was like in this weird costume and like acting a certain way and everybody else right. was like what are you doing she's rolling around like elvira's like evil uh, twin sister yeah <laughs> and there's something that's just so like off-putting and kind of campy about right. this world that she's in and you really question like is this reality like what what am i perceiving right now which i feel like is sort of the whole point behind everything is she's right. manifesting her own intention and her own reality into reality but it has consequences yeah pretty much there's that neon demon moment too where trish takes on her look oh yeah that shit was creepy as fuck mm-hmm. yeah it was very weird <laughs> proceeds to beat the shit out of her yeah <laughs> honestly though there but like when when thrown into conflict this is the problem with a lot of modern witches they fucking fold a lot of them can and will and that's the thing like when she gets confronted by trish i mean you could see like the terror on her face when she's get confronted with a detective you could see her folding I mean, even when the girl, like, grabs, like, she's like, I'm going to go fucking tell the cops you killed my fucking husband. She's, like, grabbing her pendant and saying, crash, crash, crash. That's the thing, like, with a lot of modern things, they believe that a lot of uh, problems can be solved with that. But also the thing is, there's that sense of reality that also hits. So when things don't go their way, as in the love potions, love, finding the one true thing, it's very heart like hard for them to come to these things because they put so much energy towards it. So when it doesn't go that way, that's when the witch crumbles. I believe at, at some point in modern witch or right. paganism. Like, I think what had happened, especially when she was trying to get the girl to crash and it didn't happen. I think that honestly, she never had evil intentions to begin with. I think she was always completely naive and innocent in what she was uh, believing, except at the end when she actually did stab somebody but that brings me back to the matter of intention is if your intention is faulty then the other intentions are going to come through she didn't really want to hurt anybody and so that's why in those situations she couldn't well the other witch even warned her yeah she's like maybe you probably shouldn't be messing with certain love magic if you're going to be yeah. like wanting certain things and she, love like, magic is so chaotic and it's so unpredictable and it has a lot to do with just the unique perceptions of love and again of beauty and that's seen in the way that everyone reacts to certain situations how the deputy reacted or what was it detective reacted versus how the other men had reacted 
there is that like one scene where he does try to like protect the witches too though like we're not gonna mess with these cults yeah. we're not we're gonna let them do their own thing they're not hurting anybody and the guy's like is it because you're sleeping with one right <laughs> like shit that's pretty funny though he calls them on it <laughs> well with that being said do you guys have any final thoughts about this film I think it's a stunning movie for something that was released in 2016. It hits every expectation of the genre and the ideals that inspired it, whether it be from the 1950s, 70s, or fairy tale from before. And so I think it hits on all the notes, and I think it's an excellent film from the director, and I am ecstatic to see what she comes out with next. Um, I think that she got a lot of points across, and this is just an homage to everything like witchcraft in the new modern age. And I think if you practice it, practice witchcraft or paganism, you will have a love and respect for this movie because it does pay good tribute to it. Uh, the colors are one thing that really struck me about this one. The, the choice of colors, the like the feathering of lights and things like that in certain scenes, the meshing of her like little fairy like 60s fairy tale world with like the modern era all being sort of in that same color palette uh, really struck me with this movie as well as a lot of the social commentary that she's discussing is very uh is very subtle it doesn't feel so in your face that you're literally like that there because we just did a deep analysis on it but while you could just passively watch this and not even consider those ideas and i would generally think you'd probably still enjoy it definitely overall. Nothing but respect for somebody who shoots on old school film, especially 35 millimeter, and then cutting it yourself with the negatives. That shit's fucking hard. <laughs> Using even like modern equipment to do something like that, it's a very tedious process. So for her to do all that to create the effect instead of just using a filter over the top of it says a lot about her as a filmmaker. So definitely excited to see what else she's going to make. So go and watch it because it's worth, you know, watching a specifically original film like this in a group of films that you might see that are not original and mm. are pretty lame. <laughs> this one and the neon demon are just, they're spot on for what they were trying yeah, to tell you. Definitely. So do you guys have any favorite scenes from these movies? I'll start. I personally loved the diner scene in the neon demon where they're having the conversation about beauty because I feel like that is a perspective that isn't really considered acceptable for a lot of people to accept the sort of shallowness that comes with beauty. But there's also something so deep about beauty as well that isn't mentioned. It's such a complex topic that deeming it simply as something that is shallow and vapid is not really doing it justice. And I like that they really played on, well, you know, if she wasn't beautiful, would you even take in a second look at her? That's that's something I wish a lot of people would ask when it comes to how they perceive people presenting their own beauty. Favorite scenes. If we're going for, let's see, the neon demon, it has to be the runway scene. I, that that's was mine too. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I, I, I just, I just like finessed you right there. Wait, huh? are you talking about the the one in the black or the one prior before they get the I shot? Don't know, the black one with all the triangles. That's the runway scene to okay, me. Okay. Yeah, the black one with the triangles and where her head's like kaleidoscope. That's like all that. I loved all of that, and I loved that it didn't take me too long to even figure out what they were conveying. It was such like a a um 
minimalist. It's a minimalist shot, but it's it's very um, what's the word? What's the word I use for shit like this? Uh, ah, ah. <laughs> the it's like Picasso does art like this. What the fuck is that? Cubism? No, <laughs> no. It's like where faces aren't really faces, but they look like faces. They're just made of shapes. Anyway, anyway, uh, so I farted. Anyway, but regardless, <laughs> regardless on uh, the, I love that scene in the in the Love Witch. Um, fuck, there's a lot of there's a lot of fun ones in that one, but I think if I'm oh man, it's all just like one movie, isn't it? <laughs> it's all just like one scene, isn't it? The whole thing. Yeah. Really though. Uh, I can't think of one. I just really enjoyed that whole movie like, all the way through, but I couldn't think of like a moment that really stuck out to me because it wasn't as like fancy on the cinematography side of things. And excuse me, we're just taking up so much time. <laughs> hey, move on with someone else. <laughs> My favorite scene in the Neon Demon is when they're doing the runway scene, but prior to the show. So when they're like, "All right, act, uh, model, come up, do the walk." And you, the fashion designer, oh, yeah. he's oh, yeah. not paying any attention to Sarah. He's like, what, like trying to fix his glasses or whatever. Talk about then, breaking someone's spirit. And then Jesse comes up. He is glued on her. And like that, it was very uncomfortable. But at the same time, very eye-opening. I got to say, her walk sucked. Yeah. I think I think it sucked. Yeah. I didn't think she was very good at the doing the walk. She just happened to have a specific look. And he was like, I like that. Let's put you That's in That's what show. I'm saying, though. Like, yeah. how brutal that is. Yeah. Um, and then for the Love Witch, I'd have to say just the entire, like, I just, I'm not going to give it to a scene. I'm going to give it to the set design of her room. Oh, It is yeah. beautiful. It is stunning how she makes her own potions, her love bottles, how she, like, paints these massive pieces that are stunning and just great in every way how one stabbing a dude's heart out the other i mean it's just every color and everything that is in that room stands out and you want to you want to be there you want to look at it all i would say for the neon demon it's uh the suspension like bondage show that they get to see and what i can only assume is like a warehouse or something where all you can see is the strobing lights and you get to see, like, the visuals on each character's face. They change slightly as the strobe comes on and off. And that's such, like, a good moment because you kind of have this spatial awareness of where they're all placed within the room and, like, sort of their relationship to each other. In addition to using, like, a specific color and then what normally people would not see in a situation as being normal, which is, the like, the idea of this being a part of a show, like the bondage and the suspension and whatnot. So that one was really fucking good, and it sets such a good tone for the beginning of the film. And then, of course, the runway scene is, like, like that is such a good aesthetically, like, it's just good cinema. It's a good storytelling element. Huh? The fucking music! And then, of course, the music that they play oh, during yeah. that. How did we forget to mention how great the soundtrack <laughs> is in The Neon Demon? Oh, it's yeah. Like definitely one of the highlights, yeah. easily. The, the music during the whole thing is just so well chosen. And so that was definitely like one of the most appealing things for it. And then for the Love Witch, it's actually for me when uh, she decides that she's just going to take this dude back to whatever place he owns. And it's just like, I and like she sets the parameters and the terms for everything. Uh, Cliff Martinez is the, uh, oh, the nice. composer for the music. Yeah. Okay. And just how she sort of 
takes control of that situation and sort of like sets boundaries for herself and like what she wants and when it's going to happen and then continues to do pretty much what she wants after that where she's like i'm gonna go downstairs and smoke a cigarette and like sleep on the couch but i'll like i'll still make you breakfast and like wakes up cooks some food she's like are you feeling all right like you cool and then he fucking dies so she's like oh well all right and then just keeps going on with her fucking life yeah like buries him (laughs) so it's like it was such a role reversal in addition to just like the way she was able to control the situation was a refreshing change on what you normally see happen to women in film. So I enjoyed that whole bit. And then they're both unique in themselves for what they are. So I would highly recommend going to watch both of them. Final ratings. They're both eights. They're both good. They are good movies. I We've gushed about them. They're good. <laughs> yeah. Go watch them. Go watch them. It makes you uncomfortable in different ways. It makes you think about things in different ways. Don't be a fucking simp. <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to say a 7.5 for both of them, just because there's moments where I think the acting is a little bit shoddy. I think that, that there's dialogue that could have been addressed a little bit better. Um, but otherwise, no, they're both, they're both, but I loved both of them. This doesn't mean that I dislike them by any chance, but I also think they could have done some things better. I would give The Neon Demon a 7. I think it's beautiful visual, and the storyline is interesting. The only thing I would ask is definitely more character development. I wish I knew the characters more. I think that was sort of the point, is that these people are playing archetypes rather than actual actual people. However, I personally would have wanted a little more development with the characters there, and then I would give The Love Witch an 8. Because it's also absolutely gorgeous and so well crafted. I think it was a little longer than it needed to. But then again, it was done in the style of t- 60s Technicolor. And those movies were always stupid long. So it makes sense. I would give the Neon Demon like an 8.5. I think it was stunning as a piece of cinematography for what you get to see as far as what's going on with the symbology and what's going on. The only reason why it doesn't have a higher rating is because like you guys mentioned, it's uh, not an easily accessible movie. If you're just a casual movie goer, if you mm. go and watch the neon demon, you might not get a lot of what's going on. And that's probably why I would give it an 8.5 instead of like a perfect score. And then the love, Witch, I'll give a nine because I think it's such a great piece of like what you can do as a filmmaker with what exists already. So you, you've seen all the things that are tropes within the movie, but they're subverted at every single turn. There's not a single thing in there that she used that is exactly as it existed before the film was made. And so she's, she's, she was able to create something that's unique and originally hers, and nobody else will probably be able to do that like pretty much ever after this movie is made. And she was just so involved with it that like the respect is there as like a director. And then she did what? Directing, editing, producing it, writing it like costume it's just design so much. set design she scored it as well she made the music bruh she did like, a lot she took everything from her brain to paper to something that was tangible and that is very hard to do as a creative so that's why i rate it so highly and you should definitely go watch it mm-hmm. well thank you guys for coming out and talking about these movies with me so as you know, we can be found on most social medias, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can listen to this podcast anywhere that you stream podcasts, Spotify, Apple Music, iHeartRadio, just look for us. We are BDTGH. Did I get that right? <laughs> I never get that right. 
and yeah go listen to us and if you like what we do and you want a little bit more of us check out our patreon page that's where you can directly support the movement that we are doing here the movement of film analysis pretty soon we're gonna start releasing weekly episodes where we ourselves will be talking about certain topics these little side things that are only available on the patreon you can also get little blooper reels and fun little things on the patreon as well so go there give us a little money and help us do what we do yeah so thank you guys i'm justine i'm mitch i'm mer and i'm jonathan thank you have a good night yeah.